Praise the Lord. Wasn't that worship wonderful this morning? God is so, He is a way maker. Because a few weeks ago we lost our leader and some of the, those that were worshiping with them and God just brought some young people up and He never misses a beat. God always has a backup plan. And His backup plan is sometimes His A plan when we think it's His B plan. So I'm excited to see some of the young people, some new, new faces, new voices, and we just know that God is, God is never caught off guard. And as long as we'll trust Him, God will make a way. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the opportunity we've had to worship You this morning and to, to serve You by our giving, to serve You by blessing a child and, and dedicating a child. And now we turn to the Word of God. You have ordained... Father, that we are to grow and mature through the preaching and teaching of your word. The Apostle Paul wrote that, 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 that the way that the things are directed, corrected, and matured in a church is through the preaching of the word. When Jesus ran into unbelief and Jesus ran into, into challenges, his answer was to go about teaching and preaching in the countryside and in the synagogues. So you have ordained the preaching and the declaring and the teaching an understanding of your word to be the, a primary way that we are to be fed as sheep are fed. And we thank you, Father, today for the word that you've given to us. This is not just a book. This is not just any book. This is a living word of God. This is God-breathed, and it is you speaking to us today. And we thank you that you've given us your spirit, the precious Holy Spirit. Jesus said, when I leave, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And He's going to teach you and lead you into things to come and prepare you for things to come. And so we're looking for the Holy Spirit today to speak into our hearts and to our lives. And we're asking you, Father, to help us to open our hearts today to receive what it is He would say to, you, to us today. And Father, I ask you to take the things that I, believe, I know you've put in my heart. And I, as much best as I know how, surrender my, my tongue, my mind, and all of my being to you today, that you would use me to speak, as it were, the Word of God says, only the oracles of God, what you want to say. And so I remove my own ideas, my own thinking, and allow you to speak through me as best I know how. And for that we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. Well, we're in a series which has gone on for a while, but it is so critical, called Follow Me. And it's based on, uh, uh, based on what Jesus said to his disciples when he first called them to himself. Because we get so, so many things in life, so many things in our walk. I mean, I've been a Christian for 41 years now. And, and, and in, in walking with him, there are many things that have come across my path into my life that have distracted me, gotten me, tried to get me off track, and sometimes it's gotten me off track. And, and it can be so confusing. And we live in a world today where the, the information has some much greater access to it than when I got saved 40 years ago. I mean, we got things on our phone. Some of you are surfing the web right now when you should be listening. And there's just, you know, people do fact checks. So when the preacher says something, and I've done it too, you know, is that what it really says? And, and so there's so much information that, available to come at us. We're so easily distracted, and we can be easily distracted with very good things. And, and, and because of the times we're in, it's so important that we stay focused, and we stay focused together. And I believe with all my heart God is calling this church to go somewhere together. And to do that we have to be, just as the, as just as the saints were of old, of one mind and of one accord, which means we have to have the same focus. 
And that focus that God's taken us back to is simply the simplicity of what Jesus called his disciples to do. It was, he said, you come follow me. It's that simple. But it's also complex because we get in the way. We try to figure out where we're going. We try to fit. And all he said is just follow me. And if we'll follow him, he'll get us where he wants us to be. When he called uh, Peter and John and when he called James and, and Andrew, the four of them together, he said, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. He didn't say, now I've called you. You go learn how to be a fisher of men. As they followed him, they learned how to become fishers of men. It was in the course of following him. And you'll see as we go through these different lessons, I'm attempting to bring each one of them back that our reason for doing what we're supposed to do is simply a result of following him. So our signature scripture here is in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, where Jesus now gives them a little more instruction. Because in the beginning he just said, follow me. Now he says to them, so he's giving them another chance, but he's telling them a little more of what this is going to involve. He said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and then follow me. So now we find out to truly follow him, there's two things we have to be willing to do. One is to deny ourselves. And we spent several weeks talking about what that means. That does not mean to, to kill yourself. It does not mean that you lose your personality and just become you know, a bland doorstop somewhere. It means you take who you thought you were as an individual, and because you're now in Christ, you know, now no longer let yourself see things, decide things, and act as if you're separate from Christ. So I don't have the right to look at you through my own view of you. I must look at you how Christ sees you. And for some of you, that's good. <laughs> and then we've got to learn to look at each other as Christ sees each other, because we're in Christ. And we're learning more of this as we go along. And now we're looking at what does it mean to take up our cross? Well, the cross is the place where he suffered and died. And so as we're following him, he went to a cross. There's a cross we're to go to too. And notice it says take up our cross, which means each of us has a cross. And it may be more than one as we're learning. And it doesn't necessarily mean we've got to go be nailed to a, to a, 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 a physical wooden cross. But there's some things we've got to do that might, that might be easier because it's over and done once. And so we're learning in a very practical way, what does it mean to take up our cross and follow Him? We learn in the beginning, the very first thing it means is it means suffer persecution. You don't hear a lot about that in church. Oh yes, pastor, I want to hear more of that. But Jesus was persecuted and He was rejected. And if we're going to follow Him, we're going to go where He goes, would go, and we're going to do what He would do, which means we're running counter to the world and the world's system and the world's philosophies and the world's way of looking at things and we're going to run head on into selfishness, pride, and just sin. And we will be persecuted for that. It does not mean being sick with disease, because Jesus was not sick with disease. So it's following Him does not mean your cross is not whatever sickness you may be bearing or have borne. Your cross is not your spouse. What your cross may be is you dying to yourself to live with your spouse. And so we're beginning to look at some very practical things. God has ordained us to, 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 to live in community together as Christians. 
And in the process of living together, if we really live together, and that doesn't mean we sell everything and come live in here, but it means we live in a closer relationship than we've been willing to live in. And, and that means that we've got to be willing, to, that we're going to be confronted with things. Now before I get into today's message, well, let me, let me finish reviewing. So what we began to look at, there's, there's several steps. There's several steps, practical things you deal with every day where you have an opportunity to take up your cross and follow Him. And the first thing we looked at was forgiveness. Forgiveness is a cross, yes. Because when I forgive what you've done to me, I'm willing to take the hurt on me so that you can be free. And I used the example of, of, of somebody coming in with a garbage, carrying a big uh, plastic bag of garbage, and then throwing some of it at me. And of course, what we want to do is pick it up and throw it back, take our garbage and throw it back at them. But we saw that if we're going to follow Jesus, Jesus did not strike back at us. When, when He was arrested, He did not strike back. We're going to see a little bit of that today. When He was nailed, to, when He was beaten, when He was spit upon, when, the, when those Roman soldiers mocked Him as being a king, and they put a mock purple robe on Him, and they made a, a crown, but it was of thorns, and they shoved it on His head, mocking Him and spitting at Him, and, and, and slapping His face and saying, you know, prophesy who, who just hit you. They were mocking Him, and Jesus received all of that because he was going through that to relieve them of the guilt and of the sin. He was taking their sin upon himself, literally while he was standing there, for their sake. And that's what God's love is like. So if we're going to follow Christ, we've got to follow him with that kind of love. And the starting place is being willing to love one another. Where we're going to get to is we've got to be willing to love the world with that love, but if we can't love one another with it, how are we ever going to go out into the world and love one another? And then we saw this amazing thing that forgiveness is just the first step. And many of us have trouble even taking that first step. Now as we go on to these other things, and the second thing we began to look at last week, I want to, we're going to finish up and then we're going to get into the, today's message. But before we do that, I want to read some verses to you out of Hebrews 12. This has kind of went off in me as I was getting ready this morning. Because what we're talking about now is not you know, how much God blesses you, how much God's going to prosper you, what God wants to do for you. We're getting down, this is, this is what the Bible calls the meat of the word. This is not stuff that will attract a large crowd. In fact, this is stuff that makes us make difficult decisions. But that's how we grow. And I'm going to share some things even in my own life today because what we're talking about now begins to press on me and begins to make... This is, these are things that make me uncomfortable because it confronts me where I live. And I'm talking about living in sin. I'm talking about living with you <laughs> and other people. All right? So I want to read this because this is God's heart in anything He does with us. Hebrews, 5, Hebrews 12, 5. Have you forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons? My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. I'll explain that in a minute. Nor be discouraged when you're rebuked by Him. For whom the Lord loves, He chastens. Now the word chasten there sounds harsh, but it just means trains. It's pedeo. In the Greek language, it means to train to train a child. For whom the love, Lord loves, He trains, and He scourges every son whom He receives. That word means spanks. 
But why? Verse 7. Well, we look, at back, look at verse 8. Whom the Lord loves, He chastens. So whatever correction God brings in our life, whatever challenge God brings to our life, whenever God confronts us out of something, always remember this, it's always out of love for us. It's always out of love for us. And God will never correct you. God will never chastise you. He will never, he will never chasten you for something you can't do. We had four children and I never disciplined them when they were two years of age because they didn't fold the laundry and do their own wash. Because at two years of age, all they know how to do is get it dirty. Now, if they're 18 and all they know how to do is get it dirty, well, I don't want to mess around with that. I don't want to get... So, God corrects us because He loves us. So always remember that this is written in love. And God enables us to do what He tells us to do. The problem is, the real issue is, is not that we're not able, we don't want to. I went over big. But it's the truth. I remember one time on my knees one morning praying, God, please help me to do this. Please help me to do this. He says, I'm not standing in your way. You do it. (laughs) Don't tell me to help you when you're the one that can do it. You start doing it, and I'll enable you to do it. I'm preaching to me this morning, so you can listen in. Verse 7. But if you endure the chastening, what that means in the Greek language is if you allow it to do its work in you, If you allow God's Word, the correction of God's Word, the chastening of God's Word, the training of God's Word, if you allow His Word to do in you what He intends it to do, look what will happen. Then then you're enabling God to deal with you as sons. So if we'll receive His Word this morning, if we'll receive it as coming from a Father who loves us, then we allow Him to deal with us as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not chasten? Well, nowadays, there may be quite a few. But if you are without chastening, of which we've all become partakers, then you're illegitimate and not sons. In other words, if God's correcting you, it's because you're His child. It's a sign you're a son, a child of God. Because if not, you're not His child. You're illegitimate and not sons. Verse 9. Furthermore, we have human fathers who corrected us, we're supposed to, and we paid them respect. Shall we stop? Blah, blah, blah. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? Verse 10. For indeed, for, for a few days they chastened us as seemed best to them, uh, but He for our profit, that we may come become partakers of His holiness. See, God has a plan. Chris preached a message several weeks ago that you're under construction. God's at work in you, both to will, both to will, both to will and to do His good pleasure. He's not in you to help you do your pleasure. He's in you to help you do His pleasure, but His pleasure in you is much more pleasurable than any pleasure you can work for yourself. And His ultimate goal is to produce in us holiness. Holiness. Verse 11. Now no chastening or correction seems joyful, I can tell by the response this morning, for the present, but painful. So if it's not hurting, it's probably not God. 
I'm not talking about sickness and disease. I mean, ah, that got me. But, but nevertheless, afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. God is at work to produce fruit in your life. And that fruit is nothing less than Christ Himself. God wants to produce in you and through you the character, the love, the nature of Christ Himself because He is in you and you are in Him if indeed you are Christ. To those who have been trained by it. Now training works this way. If you were a veteran and you went through basic training, you found out that in basic training they did two basic things. You sat in a classroom and they gave you instruction. But they didn't trust the instruction enough. The instruction is what we get here on Sunday morning. But then they sent you out in the field to carry out the instruction that you just learned in a classroom. Training is when you're put into situations where you have to apply the information that you've learned because the drill sergeant understands that it's only by doing it that you learn it, not by just hearing it alone. I think Jesus said that several times. So this is the classroom where we learn the instructions of the Father and the Master. Life out there is where we're trained in it if we will apply it in our lives. And I guarantee you, for the things we're talking about, you will have opportunity to apply it maybe before you get home. So the first thing we talked about is forgiveness. The second thing we talked about, began to talk about last week is our effect on one another. We're going up another step. So God's telling us to walk in our relationship with each other, not just based on whether I gotta get, we got to get along with each other, but based on how my life affects you. And we look, well, why, why, would, why would I govern my life by how it affects you? Because we're one. God has made us to influence one another. Proverbs is the advice of a father to a son. And so much of that advice in the book of Proverbs is to young men about who to associate with and who not to associate with because you pick up attitudes by who you hang out with. Because it's contagious. Habits are contagious. And so we are to govern, we looked through scriptures last week, we are to govern our lives not by what my freedom is, but by how my life affects your life. And so I know, Paul will use the example, which is hard for us to grasp today, but in his day and age, that, that where, where he ministered, most of the people he ministered to had been, they were not Jewish, they were raised as Gentiles, and they served, they went to a, a temple, and they worshipped idols, they worshipped gods, who of course were no gods. And in the church that we were looking at, they went to a church, and they went to a temple, and they worshipped a god called Diana, and, and, and they would sacrifice animals some cases in the temple, and then they would sacrifice these animals to this goddess, Diana, an idol, and then they would, as part of the service, they would eat the meat together because there was a sharing in this sacrifice to her. Well, the issue comes up, these people get saved, and now they don't go to that temple anymore, but now they go to their brother's house to sit down and eat, and now the issue comes to their mind, where where did that steak come from? 
Did that come from the temple of Diana, from this morning's sacrifice? So am I still eating meat that was sacrificed to idols? And Paul says, look, I understand that what you eat has nothing, no spiritual significance. It may have a hell significance, but no spiritual significance because when we, when we bless the food, when we give thanks to God for the food, we're sanctifying it because we're acknowledging that food was given to us by God, whether it came from the temple or it came from Joe's butcher shop down the street. Paul says, I understand that. So I'm free to eat meat without asking. He said, but if my brother who's sitting at the table next to me doesn't have that same understanding and his heart is convicted because he knows that meat came from the temple, then I won't eat the meat. I will give up my freedom because my f- exercising my freedom might cause him to violate his conscience. So that's, that's walking in a level of love. See, forgiveness is one thing. Now I'm willing, to, I'm willing to take my freedom that I know is right and I'm willing to lay it down for your sake so I won't cause you to stumble. And we ended with some verses on that. So where we ended last week, because I didn't quite finish it, is I want to show you two examples of where Jesus... Remember, we're following Jesus, where Jesus did this same thing. All right, everybody with me? Okay. Uh, first thing is, let's go to Philippians chapter 2. I assume that you'll agree with me in this, that Jesus knows more than you do. I only heard three people say yes. <laughs> I think I'm going to change the message. <laughs> Still looking for Philippians? So am I. I was here this morning. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. God's eternal power company. Okay. Philippians 5. 2. Excuse me. 2. Jesus had infinitely more knowledge, spiritual knowledge, than anybody he came in contact with. But he governed what he did not by how much he knew, but by what they could receive. In fact, he said to them in the last meeting he had with them before he went to the cross, there's so much more I want to share with you, but you can't handle it right now. Jesus governed what he did for them by what was best for them, not by what rights and freedom he has. And see, we're living in a world where we've been indoctrinated growing up, where you, especially in this country, which was birthed through a spirit of independence. And in New England, we're good at this. Bless God, I'm going to do what I want to do. I've got my rights. And Paul talks about the rights he had. He had a right to go to, 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 to preach in the church that he founded and have them support him. But he chose not to do that. I didn't make the same choice, by the way. <laughs> he chose not to do that for a reason. Philippians chapter 2. So what God's calling us to do is to be willing to set aside my rights and freedom if it's the exercise of my rights and freedom in front of you is going to cause you to violate your conscience, even though your conscience may not be fully educated the way mine may be. Everybody following me so far? Here's a good example of this. Look Look what Jesus does here. I'm going to see if I can get this. Let's go Philippians... Two, five. I want something I want to do here. Okay. 
2.5. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. So he's telling us this is how we ought to think. I hear so many people tell, I have the mind of Christ. Well, he's telling you what that mind is. Who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Now, I was a lawyer for 20 years. I wasn't a criminal lawyer, but I do understand this. I, I, we, we, we own... A, we own let's see, what's a good example of what we own? Let's take Molly. All right? Molly's our little one-year-old multi-poo, okay? I can't steal Molly. I can't rob us of Molly. I can't rob us of our car. I can't rob... Why? I, we own it. So you can't rob somebody of something... I can't rob myself of something I own. To rob something, it has to be something I'm not entitled to. To take something that does not belong to me. So what Paul is saying here is Christ was the second person of the Godhead. He did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. What that's saying is, is that he was equal with God. So it wouldn't be robbery for him to call himself equal with God, because that's who he was. That's, that's what he's saying here. Okay. So let me see if I can... The New Living Translation says, Though he was God, he did not think equality with God as something to cling to. So, verse 7. But he made himself of no reputation. So he was God. The man we call Jesus, before he was born to Mary, was the second person of the Godhead. John describes him as the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God, so he knows a person. All things were created by him, and all things were created for him, and without him nothing was, that was made was made. So Jesus, before he became Jesus in Mary's womb, he was the, 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 he was the second person of the Godhead, the Son of the living God, begotten, not made. Born. And he, all things were made through him, but he did not, he willingly set the self aside. He made himself of no reputation. That's a little hard to grasp what that word in the Greek original language means. He emptied himself, himself out of all his divine attributes. His knowledge, his power, all of the power and attributes he had as the second person of the God. This says he emptied himself out of that and taking on the form of a bondservant coming in the likeness of men, verse 8. Being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. This, this, he, keeps, he keeps humbling himself even more. So wait, wait, Pastor, you said he emptied himself of his power and his glory. Then, then how did he do all those miracles? Because he did no miracles until he was baptized by John in the Jordan River at age 30. And at that point, the Holy Spirit came in and filled him with the third person of the Godhead. So Jesus did all his miracles not by the power and glory of being the second person of the Godhead. He did all his power, miracles through the power and anointing of the Holy Spirit who lived in him. Why did he do it that way? So he would be a prototype for every other child of God, you and me, because what are you and I? We're a child of God filled with the same Spirit of God. That's why Jesus said, The things I do shall you do also, and greater works, because I go to the Father. So, 
So Jesus had all this glory. By the way, when he's about to go back to the Father in John chapter 17, he asked for God to restore to him the glory and the power that he set aside when he came here. So Jesus had all that knowledge, but he set it aside, his rights. He set aside his power. He set aside his own attributes for our sake. So we're following him. We need to be willing to do the same. The second thing I want to look at is over in Matthew chapter 26. Jesus is being arrested here. Verse 50. I'm in verse tw- chapter 27. That won't work. Verse 50. Here we go. So what's happened is they've come out to arrest him and Judas is there and gives him the kiss. And Jesus, verse 50, Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? And they came and they laid hands on Jesus and took him. And suddenly one of those who were with him, we know that's Peter somewhere else, stretched out his hand, drew his sword, and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ears. In John's gospel, then Jesus picks it up and puts it back on and heals him. But Jesus said to him, Put your sword in its place, for all those who take up the sword will perish by the sword. This is what I wanted to get to. Or don't you think that I could now call and pray to my Father and He would provide me with more than twelve legions of angels... But how then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? So although Jesus laid aside his power, he still had, he could have called to be rescued and delivered. He could have exercised his privilege, his, his, his right to call upon God to deliver him before he was nailed to that cross. But he chose to set aside his rights for our sake. And aren't you glad? He did. Okay. So the first cross we run into in life is just forgiving one another. The second cross we run into one enough is learning to govern my life by how it affects you. Those two don't actually require you to physically do anything. You can do those sitting in your chair at home. You can do those lying in bed. You can do those things internally. There's an internal attitude. But we're now going to begin to look at things that require us to do something. Whoa, how radical is that? Wow. Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. Well, we're not going to get finished this one today, I can tell you that. Verse 1. Brethren, if a man, is talking about brothers and sisters, is overtaken by any trespass, you who are, spirit, are spiritual, judge him, tell him where he's wrong, make sure he's brought before the church and condemned. That's not what it says? Oh. I must have read it wrong. Oh. Brethren, you must have a different Bible. If a man is overtaken by any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Why? Considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. There but for the grace of God go I. Verse 2. Bear 
one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The third cross that we're to bear in our relationship with each other is bearing one another's burdens. We're going to talk about what that means today. Bear one another's burdens. Verse 3. If any of you thinks himself something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. But let him examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For let each one bear his own load. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Paul's confused here. He just told us here to bear our own load, and then in verse 1 he tells us to bear one another's load. Which is it? Yes. That's right. There's two different words in Greek for bear. Go back to verse 1. That's it. Verse 2. Amen. Bear one another's burdens. The word bear there comes from a Greek word describing a heavy load that is so large that you almost will stumble trying to carry it. And this refers to the things of life, the things the enemy will do to us, that this are too much for us to bear, and we're struggling bearing it, and we're to help one another bear that load. We had an example of this, what Chris referred to this morning. We had a situation here where somebody had a need, and, and, and there's a gentleman here that was sensitive enough to recognize the need, and then he didn't say, well, I'm going to go pray about it. He did something about the need that he recognized, and the met need was met within just a few moments out in the foyer by just talking to a few people. I've said this before. I really believe with all my heart that every need in this body of believers, the resources to meet that need is here. But because we come in on Sunday morning as five or six hundred individuals and we leave as five or six hundred individuals and we've gotten along with each other, but I told you in the beginning, this is infinitely more than getting along with each other. We're not called to get along with each other, we're called to do far more than that. So this bear means something that is, 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 is too much for the person that's carrying it to bear. Verse 5, put that up. This is a different word. This basically means mind your own business. <laughs> do what you're supposed to be able to do. And we do it the other way around. We want to get in everybody else's business and not carry our own responsibility. So we're going to look at what it means to bear one another's burdens. And I told you, I'm preaching to me this morning. This is when forgiveness is not an issue to me. I'm pretty easy to forgive. I was, I was trained that way. Mm, governing my life so that it doesn't adversely affect you. I'm not an expert at it, but I've grown. That's not a challenge to me. Now we're beginning to make me uncomfortable. All right? I'm a private person. I may not seem like... I'm a shy person. You may say, how could that be? Because when I'm not up here, I'm not quite the same way. And that's true of most preachers. But I, I like to live... I want to go home. I want to be with my family. I want to sit back and have Molly in my lap, my wife next to me. And yes, you know, let's just in... Because in, 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 I'm, I'm working with people all the time. But I, I can't... I, this is confronting. I have to make some changes in my life. I have to make some changes in what I'm willing to do. God's confronting me with this. So if He's confronting me with this, I'm going to confront you because I'm not going to do this alone. <laughs> If I'm going to be miserable, you're going to be miserable. <laughs> All right? 
But I know this much, we won't be miserable. Because we're, we're stepping in to God's love. Alright, ready? Here we go. Okay. Well, let's keep going on because I want to... No, we're going to skip this. Alright. Let's go... Um, so our cross invo- involves carrying the burden of others. Let's go to Luke chapter 10. There's some parables Jesus tells. Tell, I love them. They're just wonderful. Prodigal son coming home. God throws a banquet for him. But we're going to look in this message. We probably won't get to the second one. The two that make me very uncomfortable. That's why I can't find it. <laughs> it's not in my Bible, so I don't have to do it. <laughs> oh, here it is. Luke 10, verse 25. Very familiar one. And it right away starts out messing with me. Behold a certain lawyer. Why, do they, why does he have to... <laughs> Lord, why? Why? <laughs> there are enough lawyer jokes out there as it is. <laughs> for those of you who don't, I was a lawyer for over 20 years. And then God said, no, I was... But the, the lawyer there does not mean lawyer the way I used to be a lawyer or the way you think of a lawyer. It means someone who's specialist, specialized in understanding the, the, the law of Moses and the law of the, of the Pharisees. They were legalistic. And notice the key is, behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him. So this lawyer is not coming to him to find out truth. He's coming here because he has his own agenda with the questions he's asking saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Verse 6. Jesus said, Well, what's written in the law? Jesus, I love it. He answers questions with a question. That's what I like to do. He's outlawing the lawyer. What's your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord with all your, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor is yourself. And he said to him, You've answered right. Now go do it. And you will live. But wanting to justify himself. This is where it begins to get close to home. He knows what the law, he knows what the word says we're supposed to do. And now he's trying to find a way to carve exceptions, to create boundaries so it doesn't apply to him in situations where he doesn't want to act on it. Within those boundaries, I'm very comfortable doing certain things, but then there's a boundary called the comfort zone where God calls us to step over the boundary of that comfort zone and what we don't realize when we step over there's a freedom on the other side of that and this, this man is not trying to find out how to get on the other side he's trying to draw boundaries around where he's comfortable and we all do that not just me verse 30 who's my neighbor is the question so Jesus tells a story which you'll recognize. Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among thieves. They stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Verse 31. Now by chance a priest, certain priests came by. Now a priest, if anybody was responsible for knowing what the law required, it would have been a priest or a pastor. A, a priest. He came down the road, and when he saw him, he went to the other side. It's not his responsibility. So he crossed to the other side. Verse 33. Likewise, or 32. Likewise, a Levite. Now that was the family of priests. 
So these are both priestly gentlemen who know what the law requires. And we just heard what the law was. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and your soul and your neighbor as yourself. And the issue is, what's my neighbor? Well, they've decided the guy on the other side of the street's not his neighbor. A Levite, when he arrived at the same place, came and looked. They noticed they both saw him and passed by to the other side of the street to avoid the responsibility. Verse 33. But a certain Samaritan, now to understand the real impact of what Jesus is saying here, you've got to understand what a Samaritan was to the Jews he's talking to. I don't have time to go over the whole background, but, but, but when, when, it, when Judah was taken into exile by King Nebuchadnezzar, they left some behind, called the remnant. They left some behind, and they let them intermarry with the Gentiles that they brought in. And when the Jews came back from exile, they wouldn't have anything to do with them because they had intermarried, and they, and they, became, they considered them half-breeds. It was a racial issue way back then. They weren't pure Jews, so they would have nothing to do with them. They hated them. Well, of course, you hate one group. Guess what they're going to do back? They hated the Jews back. So when Jesus uses a Samaritan as an example, this is an insult to the Jews. He's saying, this Samaritan who has no covenant with God, doesn't have all the background of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, doesn't have all the covenant promises that you have, this guy saw the same thing that the priest and the Levites saw. And where he was. And when he saw him, look at these words. He had compassion. The word compassion in Greek is sympatheo, from which we get sympathy. And it means literally to feel the same thing along with. So this Samaritan, he wasn't a priest, he wasn't even a Jew, he felt what this injured man was going through. And when you feel something, you'll move and do something. This is why we harden our hearts so that I don't have to do something because if I feel it, I'm going to have to do it. So we draw the boundary on our heart so it doesn't touch us. And people do that. If you've been raised in a situation, which I was, where you were hurt growing up and maybe misused, you want to protect yourself. So you build walls around your heart so nobody's going to hurt me again. But for me to do that, that means I've got to build a wall there that keeps people out and keeps my caring for them out because I care more for myself than I do for them. Oh boy, let's go on. Verse 34. So he went. Now he's, that compassion forces him to do something. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and set him on his own animal, and brought him to an inn and took care of him. So oil and, and wine back then was, a, was medicinal. So he's taking what he has treating his wounds, using his first aid kit to treat his wounds, and then he takes him to the inn to put him up overnight. And when the next day came, he departed, he took out two denarii and gave it to the inn. In other words, he gave him his American Express card and said to him, take care of him, whatever more you spend, when I come back, I'll repay you. The Samaritan was not looking for how little do I have to do. Because when we look for how little or how much, who are we looking at? Me. What's this going to cost me? But the Samaritan was only looking at the injured man and what he needed. Now what if Jesus looked at the cross or just looked at us and said, what's this going to mean to me? What's this going to cost me? 
All he cared about was, the Bible says in, in, earlier in, in Hebrews 12, uh, we didn't read it, it says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Well, what was that joy? You and me. Amen. You and me. We, we were the motive for which he went and endured all he went through. So which of you think was the neighbor, Jesus asked, to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, he, <laughs> no other answer. He who showed mercy on him, And Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. We're called to more than get along with one another. And I can feel us tightening up right now. What's this going to cost? What's this going to mean? That's the wrong question. That means we're still looking at ourselves. But remember, here's the answer to this whole series. Here's the, is the answer is what do, isn't really what, what do I need to do? It's we're to follow Jesus. Remember, Jesus calling us to follow Him, and this is what He did. There were times when He was exhausted and He would have been ministering to people all day, and He'd pull aside, He'd go up on the mountain to pray, and then the multitude would come after Him with all their needs to be healed, and He would go and He'd minister to them. He would give of Himself and give of Himself and give of Himself. He wasn't concerned with what it cost Him. And ultimately, the ultimate price had no concern for what it cost Him, because it cost Him His life. It cost Him His life. And we're called to follow Him. And as we, as we become willing to do this, and remember, God doesn't ever call us to do something He doesn't equip us to do. God's not going to call you to take up somebody else's burden without enabling you to do that. In fact, if you want more, then start giving more of yourself and because God has to put more in you to give of yourself. And I'm not just talking about money. I'm talking about time and effort. And it starts with caring. Caring. Because what holds me back sometimes is, look, I'm busy, I'm tired, I've got, you know, I'm, I'm not 20 years old anymore, I've got responsibilities. What's this going to mean? But it's selfish. And this is where this message begins to confront me. All right, Lord, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll give you this much time of my day, then I'll give it this, but then the rest of the time's mine. No. Now here's the good news. God knows where we are. He'll meet us where we are. For the Bible says God is at work in us both to will and to do His good pleasure. The Holy Spirit's been put in us to teach us, to lead us and guide us into truth and to enable us to do it. But if we don't know what the issue is, if we don't realize that holding us back is we have set boundaries around our heart, how far I'm willing to go, then we're going to struggle with following Him because He's in you trying to prompt you to do things you don't want to do. Now here's my confidence. If God's calling us to do this, He is going to enable us to do it. So we're going to learn to do this together. Amen? We're going to end right now. There's another story we're going to get into, uh, and then we're going to go on to one more, one more way to take up our cross together. Uh, we're going to do that with Rob Grinley's next week, and then the week after that. Let's pray. Father... These are things that make us uncomfortable, but it's your word. You are not calling us to do something to hurt us. But as we read in the beginning, because you're our Father and you love us, you want to produce in us fruit 
of your kingdom, of your love, of your peace, of your joy. You have put in us newness of life, your kind of life, and we've been robbed of it because we're afraid to step outside of our comfort zone and allow you to use us in ministering to other people. Forgive us, Father, and help us. Meet us where we are, not just individually, but together as a congregation of believers, that we may begin to step outside the box, step over the boundaries of our comfort zone, and allow your Spirit in us to lead us and to guide us. Help us to receive this message in the spirit of love in which you've spoken it through your word and you've spoken it this morning. And for that we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. In a moment.